0: Section 29 of Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books, edited by Charles W. Eliot. Essay Supplementary to Preface, 1815, by William Wordsworth. With the young of both sexes, poetry is, like love, a passion, but for much of the greater part of those who have been proud of its power over their minds, a necessity soon arises of breaking the pleasing bondage, or it relaxes of itself, the thoughts being occupied in domestic cares or the time engrossed by business. Poetry then becomes only an occasional recreation, while to those whose existence passes away in a course of fashionable pleasure it is a species of luxurious amusement. In middle and declining age a scattered number of serious persons resort to poetry as to religion, for a protection against the pressure of trivial employments, and as a consolation for the afflictions of life. And lastly, there are many who, having been enamoured of this art in their youth, have found leisure, after youth was spent, to cultivate general literature, in which poetry has continued to be comprehended as a study. Into the above classes the readers of poetry may be divided. Critics abound in them all, but from the last only can opinions be collected of absolute value and worthy to be depended upon as prophetic of the destiny of a new work the young who in nothing can escape delusion are especially subject to it in their intercourse with poetry the cause not so obvious as the fact is unquestionable is the same as that from which erroneous judgments in this art in the minds of men of all ages chiefly proceed but upon youth it operates with peculiar force the appropriate business of poetry which nevertheless if genuine is as permanent as pure science her appropriate employment her privilege and her duty is to treat of things not as they are but as they appear not as they exist in themselves but as they seem to exist to the senses and to the passions what a world of delusion does this acknowledged obligation prepare for the inexperienced what temptations to go astray are here held forth for them whose thoughts have been little disciplined by the understanding and whose feelings revolt from the sway of reason when a juvenile reader is in the height of his rapture with some vicious passage should experience throw in doubts or common sense suggest suspicions a lurking consciousness that the realities of the muse are but shows and her liveliest excitements are raised by transient shocks of conflicting feeling and successive assemblages of contradictory thoughts is ever at hand to justify extravagance and to sanction absurdity. But it may be asked, as these allusions are unavoidable and, no doubt, eminently useful to the mind as a process, what good can be gained by making observations the tendency of which is to diminish the confidence of youth in its feelings, and thus to abridge its innocent and even profitable pleasures? the reproach implied in the question could not be warded off if youth were incapable of being delighted with what is truly excellent or if these errors always terminated of themselves in due season but with the majority though their force be abated they continue through life moreover the fire of youth is so vivacious an element to be extinguished or damped by a philosophical remark and, while there is no danger that what has been said will be injurious or painful to the ardent and the confident, it may prove beneficial to those who, being enthusiastic, are at the same time modest and ingenuous. The intimation may unite with their own misgivings to regulate their sensibility, and to bring in, sooner than it would otherwise have arrived, a more discreet and sound judgment." If it should excite wonder that men of ability in later life, whose understandings have been rendered acute by practice in affairs, should be so easily and so far imposed upon when they happen to take up a new work in verse, this appears to be the cause, that, having discontinued their attention to poetry, whatever progress may have been made in other departments of knowledge, they have not, as to this art, advanced in true discernment beyond the age of youth if then a new poem fall in their way, whose attractions are of that kind which would have enraptured them during the heat of youth, the judgment not being improved to a degree that they shall be disgusted, they are dazzled, and prize and cherish the faults for having had power to make the present time vanish before them, and to throw the mind back, as by enchantment, into the happiest season of life. As they read, powers seem to be revived passions are regenerated and pleasures restored the book was probably taken up after an escape from the burden of business and with a wish to forget the world and all its vexations and anxieties having obtained this wish and so much more it is natural that they should make report as they have felt if men of mature age through want of practice be thus easily beguiled into admiration of absurdities extravagances and misplaced ornaments thinking it proper their understandings should enjoy a holiday while they are unbending their minds with verse it may be expected that such readers will resemble their former selves also in strength of prejudice and in inaptitude to be moved by the unostentatious beauties of a pure style In the higher poetry, an enlightened critic chiefly looks for a reflection of the wisdom of the heart and a grandeur of the imagination. Wherever these appear, simplicity accompanies them, magnificence herself when legitimate, depending upon a simplicity of her own, to regulate her ornaments. But it is a well-known property of human nature that our estimates are ever governed by comparisons, of which we are conscious with various degrees of distinctness. Is it not then inevitable, confining these observations to the effects of style merely, that an eye, accustomed to the glaring hues of diction by which such readers are caught and excited, will for the most part be rather repelled than attracted by an original work, the colouring of which is disposed according to a pure and refined scheme of harmony? It is in the fine arts as in the affairs of life, no man can serve, i.e. obey with zeal and fidelity, TWO MASTERS. As poetry is most just to its own divine origin when it administers the comforts and breathes the spirit of religion, they who have learned to perceive this truth, and who betake themselves to reading verse for sacred purposes, must be preserved from numerous illusions to which the two classes of readers, whom we have been considering, are liable. But, as the mind grows serious from the weight of life the range of its passions is contracted accordingly, and its sympathies become so exclusive that many species of high excellence wholly escape or but languidly excite its notice. Besides, men who read from religious or moral inclinations, even when the subject is of that kind which they approve, are beset with misconceptions and mistakes peculiar to themselves attaching so much importance to the truths which interest them they are prone to overrate the authors by whom those truths are expressed and enforced they come prepared to impart so much passion to the poet's language that they remain unconscious how little in fact they receive from it and on the other hand religious faith is to him who holds it so momentous a thing and error appears to be attended with such tremendous consequences that, if opinions touching upon religion occur which the reader condemns, he not only cannot sympathize with them, however animated the expression, but there is, for the most part, an end put to all satisfaction and enjoyment. Love, if it before existed, is converted into dislike, and the heart of the reader is set against the author and his book." To these excesses, they, who from their professions ought to be the most guarded against them, are perhaps the most liable, I mean those sects whose religion, being from the calculating understanding, is cold and formal. For when Christianity, the religion of humility, is founded upon the proudest faculty of our nature, what can be expected but contradictions? accordingly believers of this caste are at one time contemptuous at another being troubled as they are and must be with inward misgivings they are jealous and suspicious and at all seasons they are under temptation to supply by the heat with which they defend their tenets the animation which is wanting to the constitution of the religion itself Faith was given to man that his affections, detached from the treasures of time, might be inclined to settle upon those of eternity, the elevation of his nature which this habit produces on earth being to him a presumptive evidence of a true state of existence, and giving him a title to partake of its holiness. The religious man values what he sees chiefly as an imperfect shadowing forth of what he is incapable of seeing." the concerns of religion refer to indefinite objects, and are too weighty for the mind to support them without relieving itself by resting a great part of the burden upon words and symbols. The commerce between man and his maker cannot be carried on but by a process where much is represented in little, and the infinite being accommodates himself to a finite capacity. In all this may be perceived the affinity between religion and poetry, between religion, making up the deficiencies of reason by faith, and poetry, passionate for the instruction of reason, between religion, whose element is infinitude and whose ultimate trust is the supreme of things, submitting herself to circumscription and reconciled to substitutions, and poetry, ethereal and transcendent, yet incapable to sustain her existence without sensuous incarnation. In this community of nature may be perceived also the lurking excitements of kindred error, so that we shall find that no poetry has been more subject to distortion than that species, the argument and scope of which is religious, and no lovers of the art have gone farther astray than the pious and devout. Whither then shall we turn for that union of qualifications which must necessarily exist before the decisions of a critic can be of absolute value? For a mind at once poetical and philosophical, for a critic whose affections are as free and kindly as the spirit of society, and whose understanding is severe as that of dispassionate government? Where are we to look for that initiatory composure of mind which no selfishness can disturb? for a natural sensibility that has been tutored into correctness without losing anything of its quickness and for active faculties capable of answering the demands which an author of original imagination shall make upon them associated with a judgment that cannot be duped into admiration by aught that is unworthy of it among those and those only who never having suffered their youthful love of poetry to remit much of its force have applied to the consideration of the laws of this art the best power of their understandings. At the same time it must be observed that, as this class comprehends the only judgments which are trustworthy, so does it include the most erroneous and perverse. For to be mistaught is worse than to be untaught, and no perverseness equals that which is supported by system, No errors are so difficult to root out as those which the understanding has pledged its credit to uphold. In this class are contained censors, who, if they be pleased with what is good, are pleased with it only by imperfect glimpses, and upon false principles, who, should they generalize rightly, to a certain point, are sure to suffer for it in the end, who if they stumble upon a sound rule are fettered by misapplying it or by straining it too far being incapable of perceiving when it ought to yield to one of higher order in it are found critics too petulant to be passive to a genuine poet and too feeble to grapple with him men who take upon them to report of the course which he holds whom they are utterly unable to accompany confounded if he turn quick upon the wing, dismayed if he soar steadily into the region, men of palsied imaginations and indurated hearts, in whose minds all healthy action is languid, who therefore feed as the many direct them, or with the many, are greedy after vicious provocatives, judges whose censure is auspicious and whose praise ominous. In this class meet together the two extremes of best and worst. The observations presented in the foregoing series are of too ungracious a nature to have been made without reluctance, and, were it only on this account, I would invite the reader to try them by the test of comprehensive experience. If the number of judges who can be confidently relied upon be in reality too small, it ought to follow that partial notice only, or neglect, perhaps long-continued, or attention wholly inadequate to their merits, must have been the fate of most works in the higher departments of poetry and that on the other hand numerous productions have blazed into popularity and have passed away leaving scarcely a trace behind them it will be further found that when authors shall have at length raised themselves into general admiration and maintained their ground errors and prejudices have prevailed concerning their genius and their works which the few who are conscious of those errors and prejudices would deplore, if they were not recompensed by perceiving that there are select spirits for whom it is ordained that their fame shall be in the world an existence like that of virtue, which owes its being to the struggles it makes and its vigor to the enemies whom it provokes, a vivacious quality ever doomed to meet with opposition and still triumphing over it and, from the nature of its dominion, incapable of being brought to the sad conclusion of Alexander, when he wept that there were no more worlds for him to conquer. Let us take a hasty retrospect of the poetical literature of this country for the greater part of the last two centuries, and see if the facts support these inferences. Who is there that now reads the creation of Dubardus? Yet all Europe once resounded with his praise, he was caressed by kings and when his poem was translated into our language the fairy queen faded before it the name of spenser whose genius is of a higher order than even that of Arisoto, is at this day scarcely known beyond the limits of the british isles and the value of his works is to be estimated from the attention now paid to them by his countrymen compared with that which they bestow on those of some other writers it must be pronounced small indeed the laurel meed of mighty conquerors and poets sage are his own words but his wisdom has in this particular been his worst enemy while its opposite whether in the shape of folly or madness has been their best friend but he has a great power and bears a high name the laurel has been awarded to him a dramatic author if he write for the stage must adapt himself to the taste of the audience or they will not endure him accordingly the mighty genius of shakespeare was listened to the people were delighted but i am not sufficiently versed in stage antiquities to determine whether they did not flock as eagerly to the representation of many pieces of contemporary authors wholly undeserving to appear upon the same boards had there been a formal contest for superiority among dramatic writers, that Shakespeare, like his predecessors Sophocles and Euripides, would have often been subject to the mortification of seeing the prize adjudged to sorry competitors, becomes too probable when we reflect that the admirers of Settle and Shadwell were in a later age as numerous and reckoned as respectable in point of talent as those of Dryden." At all events, that Shakespeare stooped to accommodate himself to the people is sufficiently apparent, and one of the most striking proofs of his almost omnipotent genius is, that he could turn to such glorious purpose those materials which the prepossessions of the age compelled him to make use of. Yet even this marvellous skill appears not to have been enough to prevent his rivals from having some advantage over him in public estimation else how can we account for passages and scenes that exist in his works unless upon a supposition that some of the grossest of them a fact which in my own mind i have no doubt of were foisted in by the players for the gratification of the many but that his works whatever might be their reception upon the stage made but little impression among the ruling intellects of the time May be inferred from the fact that Lord Bacon, in his multifarious writings, nowhere either quotes or alludes to him. Footnote. The learned Hakewill, a third edition of whose book bears date 1635, writing to refute the error, quote, touching nature's perpetual and universal decay, end quote, cites triumphantly the names of Ariosto, Tasso, Bartus, and Spenser as instances that poetic genius has not degenerated but he makes no mention of Shakespeare. His dramatic excellence enabled him to resume possession of the stage after the restoration, but Dryden tells us that in his time two of the plays of Beaumont and Fletcher were acted for one of Shakespeare's, and so faint and limited was the perception of the poetic beauties of his dramas in the time of Pope, that in his edition of the plays, with a view of rendering to the general reader a necessary service, he printed between inverted commas those passages which he thought most worthy of notice. In this day the French critics have abated nothing of their aversion to this darling of our nation. The English, with their buffon de Shakespeare, is as familiar an expression among them as in the time of Voltaire, Baron Grimm is the only French writer who seems to have perceived his infinite superiority to the first names of the French theatre, an advantage which the Parisian critic owed to his German blood and German education. The most enlightened Italians, though well acquainted with our language, are wholly incompetent to measure the proportions of Shakespeare. The Germans only, of foreign nations, are approaching towards a knowledge and feeling of what he is." In some respects they have acquired a superiority over the fellow-countrymen of the poet, for among us it is a current, I might say, an established opinion, that Shakespeare is justly praised when he is pronounced to be, quote, a wild irregular genius in whom great faults are compensated by great beauties, end quote. How long may it be before this misconception passes away, and it becomes universally acknowledged, that the judgment of Shakespeare in the selection of his materials, and in the manner in which he has made them, heterogeneous as they often are, constitute a unity of their own, and contribute all to one great end, is not less admirable in his imagination, his invention, and his intuitive knowledge of human nature. There is extant a small volume of miscellaneous poems, in which shakespeare expresses his own feelings in his own person it is not difficult to conceive that the editor george Stevens should have been insensible to the beauties of one portion of that volume the sonnets though in no part of the writings of this poet is found on an equal compass a greater number of exquisite feelings felicitously expressed but from regard to the critic's own credit he would not have ventured to talk of an act of parliament not being strong enough to compel the perusal of those little pieces if he had not known that the people of england were ignorant of the treasures contained in them and if he had not moreover shared the too common propensity of human nature to exult over a supposed fall into the mire of a genius whom he had been compelled to regard with admiration as an inmate of the celestial regions there sitting where he durst not soar. Nine years before the death of Shakespeare, Milton was born, and early in life he published several small poems, which, though on their first appearance they were praised by a few of the judicious, were afterwards neglected to that degree that Pope in his youth could borrow from them without risk of its being known. Whether these poems are at this day justly appreciated, I will not undertake to decide, nor would it imply a severe reflection upon the mass of readers to suppose the contrary, seeing that a man of the acknowledged genius of Voss, the German poet, could suffer their spirit to evaporate, and could change their character, as is done in the translation made by him of the most popular of these pieces. At all events it is certain that these poems of Milton are now much read, and loudly praised yet were they little heard of till more than one hundred fifty years after their publication and of the sonnets dr johnson as appears from boswell's life of him was in the habit of thinking and speaking as contemptuously as stevens wrote upon those of shakespeare about the time when the pindaric odes of cowley and his imitators and the productions of that class of curious thinkers whom dr johnson has strangely styled metaphysical poets were beginning to lose something of that extravagant admiration which they had excited the paradise lost made its appearance fit audience find though few was the petition addressed by the poet to his inspiring muse i have said elsewhere that he gained more than he asked this i believe to be true but dr johnson has fallen into a gross mistake when he attempts to prove by the sale of the work that Milton's countrymen were just to it upon its first appearance. Thirteen hundred copies were sold in two years, an uncommon example, he asserts, of the prevalence of genius in opposition to so much recent enmity as Milton's public conduct had excited. But be it remembered that, if Milton's political and religious opinions, and the manner in which he announced them, had raised him many enemies, they had procured him numerous friends, who, as all personal danger was passed away at the time of publication, would be eager to procure the master-work of a man whom they revered, and whom they would be proud of praising. Take from the number of purchasers persons of this class, and also those who wished to possess the poem as a religious work, and but few, I fear, would be left who sought for it on account of its poetical merits. The demand did not immediately increase." for, says Dr. Johnson, many more readers, he means persons in the habit of reading poetry, than were supplied at first the nation did not afford. How careless must a writer be who can make this assertion in the face of so many existing title pages to belie it? Turning to my own shelves, I find the folio of Cowley, 7th edition, 1681. A book near it is Flatman's Poems, 4th edition, 1686, Waller, 5th edition, same date. The poems of Norris of Bremerton, not long after, went, I believe, through nine editions. What further demand might there be for these works I do not know, but I well remember that, twenty-five years ago, the bookseller stalls in London swarmed with the folios of Cowley. This is not mentioned in disparagement of that able writer and amiable man, but merely to show that, if Milton's works were not more read, it was not because readers did not exist at the time. The early editions of The Paradise Lost were printed in a shape which allowed them to be sold at a low price, yet only three thousand copies of the work were sold in eleven years. And the nation, says Dr. Johnson, had been satisfied from 1623 to 1664, that is, forty-one years, with only two editions of the works of shakespeare which probably did not together make one thousand copies facts adduced by the critic to prove the paucity of writers there were readers in multitudes but their money went for other purposes as their admiration was fixed elsewhere we are authorized then to affirm that the reception of the paradise lost and the slow progress of its fame are proofs as striking as can be desired that the positions which i am attempting to establish are not erroneous how amusing to shape to oneself such a critique as a wit of charles days or a lord of the miscellanies or trading journalist of king william's time would have brought forth if he had set his faculties industriously to work upon this poem everywhere impregnated with original excellence so strange indeed are the obliquities of admiration that they whose opinions are much influenced by authority will often be tempted to think that there are no fixed principles in human nature for this art to rest upon i have been honoured by being permitted to peruse in manuscript a tract composed between the period of the Revolution and the close of that century. It is the work of an English peer of high accomplishments, its object to form the character and direct the studies of his son. Perhaps nowhere does a more beautiful treatise of the kind exist. The good sense and wisdom of the thoughts, the delicacy of the feelings, and the charm of the style, are throughout equally conspicuous." Yet the author, selecting among the poets of his own country those whom he deems most worthy of his son's perusal, particularizes only Lord Rochester, Sir John Denham, and Cowley. Writing about the same time, Shaftesbury, an author at present unjustly depreciated, describes the British muses as only yet lisping in their cradles the arts by which pope soon afterwards contrived to procure to himself a more general and a higher reputation than perhaps any english poet ever attained during his lifetime are known to the judicious and as well known is it to them that the undue exertion of those arts is the cause why pope has for some time held a rank in literature to which if he had not been seduced by an over-love of immediate popularity and had confided more in his native genius he never could have descended he bewitched the nation by his melody and dazzled it by his polished style and was himself blinded by his own success having wandered from humanity in his ecologues with boyish inexperience the praise which these compositions obtained tempted him into a belief that nature was not to be trusted at least in pastoral poetry to prove this by example he put his friend gay upon writing those eclogues which their author intended to be burlesque the instigator of the work and his admirers could perceive in them nothing but what was ridiculous nevertheless though these poems contained some detestable passages the effect as dr johnson well observes quote, Of reality and truth became conspicuous even when the intention was to show them grovelling and degraded. The pastorals, ludicrous to such as prided themselves upon their refinement, in spite of those disgusting passages, became popular and were read with delight as just representations of rural manners and occupations. Something less than sixty years after the publication of The Paradise Lost appeared Thompson's Winter, which was speedily followed by his other seasons. It is a work of inspiration, much of it is written from himself and nobly from himself. How was it received? It was no sooner read, says one of his contemporary biographers, than universally admired those only accepted who had not been used to feel, or to look for anything in poetry, beyond a point of satirical or epigrammatic wit, a smart antithesis richly trimmed with rhyme, or the softness of an elegiac complaint. To such his manly classical spirit could not readily commend itself, till, after a more attentive perusal, they had got the better of their prejudices, and either acquired or affected a truer taste. A few others stood aloof, merely because they had long before fixed the articles of their poetical creed and resigned themselves to an absolute despair of ever seeing anything new and original these were somewhat mortified to find their notions disturbed by the appearance of a poet who seemed to owe nothing but to nature and his own genius but in a short time the applause became unanimous every one wondering how so many pictures, and pictures so familiar, should have moved them but faintly to what they felt in his descriptions. His digressions, too, the overflowings of a tender and benevolent heart, charmed the reader no less, leaving him in doubt whether he should more admire the poet or love the man." Quote. This case appears to bear strongly against us, but we must distinguish between wonder and legitimate admiration. The subject of the work is the changes produced in the appearances of nature by the revolution of the year, and by undertaking to write in verse, Thomson pledged himself to treat his subject as became a poet. Now it is remarkable that, excepting the nocturnal reverie of Lady Winchelsea, and a passage or two in the Windsor Forest of Pope, The poetry of the period intervening between the publication of The Paradise Lost and The Seasons does not contain a single new image of external nature, and scarcely presents a familiar one from which it can be inferred that the eye of the poet has been steadily fixed upon his object, much less that his feelings had urged him to work upon it in the spirit of genuine imagination." to what a low state knowledge of the most obvious and important phenomena had sunk, is evident from the style in which Dryden has executed a description of night in one of his tragedies, and Pope his translation of the celebrated moonlight scene in the Iliad. A blind man, in the habit of attending accurately to descriptions casually dropped from the lips of those around him, might easily depict these appearances with more truth." Dryden's lines are vague, bombastic, and senseless. Footnote Cortez alone in a nightgown All things are hushed as nature's self lay dead, The mountains seem to nod their drowsy head, The little birds in dreams their songs repeat, And sleeping flowers beneath the night dew sweat, Even lust and envy sleep, yet love denies Rest to my soul and slumber to my eyes. Dryden's Indian Emperor. Footnote. Those of Pope, though he had Homer to guide him, are throughout false and contradictory. The verses of Dryden, once highly celebrated, are forgotten. Those of Pope still retain their hold upon public estimation. Nay, there is not a passage of descriptive poetry which at this day finds so many in such ardent admirers. Strange to think of an enthusiast, as may have been the case with thousands reciting those verses under the cope of a moonlight sky without having his raptures in the least disturbed by a suspicion of their absurdity if these two distinguished writers could habitually think that the visible universe was of so little consequence to a poet that it was scarcely necessary for him to cast his eyes upon it we may be assured that those passages of the elder poets which faithfully and poetically describe the phenomena of nature, were not at that time holden in such estimation, and that there was little accurate attention paid to those appearances End of section twenty nine